Hello and welcome to the second series of Multiscale Musings. We are a network of computational science PhD students based at the University of Warwick who are producing a podcast all about theory and computation in the physical sciences. I'm your host, Idil, and joining me today is Lakshmi Shinoi, a PhD student from the Warwick Physics Department. Today we will be discussing the latest developments in catalysis and energy storage using computational modelling techniques. And joining us in today's discussion is a senior lecturer named Francesca Balletto, who works in the theory and simulation of condensed matter group at King's College London. Right, so hello Francesca, and welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you on today. So to start us off, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, what you've studied, and maybe some of your outside research interests? Hi everyone, so I'm Francesca Valetto. I was born many years ago in Genova, in Italy. Uh, I'm currently in my middle age crisis, okay? So that's an easy reason why I cannot uh, so release my date of birth. Uh, but there's, uh, I have also so different glasses now for reading or for uh, working with my computer or for seeing. Uh, so uh, when I walk around, um I I was doing my undergrads in Genova and uh, also my PhD in physics in Genova. So I was uh, probably just uh, following uh, all the Italian uh, pathway. Um, then Berlusconi had some interference with uh, so, uh, the material science uh, center that I was uh, aiming to join. So they closed it. Um, and then I started so my traveling. So I moved for my first postdoc at the ICTP in Trieste, the International Center of Theoretical Physics, and there was a UNESCO fellow. Honestly, so that was one of the best experiences in my life in terms of combining um, an absolutely stimulating environment, but also so from a social and a personal point of view with the science. So uh, ICTP was uh, so uh, was funded by Abdus Salam and then so was also trying to to promote some ethos and so they were so really trying to, to attract people from uh, all places in the world and also mainly from uh, developing countries. So of course so there was also this kind of um, learning experience, if you want, uh, also about uh, um, how to to get in touch and how to communicate with people that are coming from a completely different background. So, of course, so I was uh, really so uh, a rook in that sense, because so after 28 years, so just uh, always in the same place, uh, so in my hometown, okay, family around, so that one was definitely so... Um, Great experience. Then I took uh, uh, I took a flight so towards Boston, and I was uh, a research assistant uh, for uh, 14 months at MIT. And during that time, uh, you you learn how powerful uh, some places can be. So what is uh, really the power of so the right address, and um, and the probably also. Applying for a permanent position from uh, from MIT so uh, is uh, slightly easier than other places. And in uh, April 2007, I was doing my interview at King's, and I started to work at King's College of London as a lecturer 
in uh, August 2007. Um, and then so I remain so at the King's uh, so until now, so the last year. So I, I'm in a sabbatical, I'm a visiting professor at the, the Donostia International Physics Center in San Sebastian, Spain. And uh, probably so in the near future, I will move back to Italy for personal reasons so at the University of Milan. Um, in terms of my research interests, so, uh, okay, just like let me tell you that as I was uh, deciding to do physics because uh, my older sister was doing math and so I, I was not able to do math so I, I didn't want to copy her. Okay, so just put that one as a very strong uh, motivation for why not to do something <laughs> because your older sister is already <laughs> getting a degree in math. Um, for many years, I wanted to, to become an engineer, a civil engineer, so I like to build up uh, things. And just at the last year of my second, of my high school, secondary school, so we had this uh, uh, gorgeous uh, physics uh, teacher. Her name was Francesca, so I don't know if that, uh, that one was a sort of kind of uh, um, destiny there. And she started to speak about entropy. And... Um, and entropy was also fascinating me. And so that one was okay. Why not to challenge myself a little bit more than engineering? So there was this idea that the physics was a little bit more difficult. So I was so just so uh, in this teenager's time when you wanted to challenge yourself. And so I decided, I, I just put the physics down with an agreement with my father that so if I was not succeeding in the first year, so I, I got quit and started to work in, uh, um, properly and not also just staying there. Um, I was, I'm for, I don't know if a portion, luckily or not, so I was quite successful during my first year and so then I remained in physics. Um, after three days uh, at a trip at the CERN, I decided that I will never study anything related to particle physics and nuclear physics or something like that, okay? So it was just enough three days that so they brought me under the ground level just to understand, no, no way. So I need an office, so I need a sort of sunlight. And so, so that one was, again, so a very scientific, well thought, so motivation for why not to be interested completely in a research field, okay? So, absolutely. Um, at the same time, so roughly at the same time, it was 1998, I was reading um, uh, for um, a project, and I was reading a so, um, fantastic paper about catalysis. And that one was a surprise, so that's what they triggered me, so the attention about material science. So material science is not very, very much promoted, especially at the beginning of any undergrad. So, and this, unfortunately, is still the case, okay? Even after so, roughly 30 years, so we are still in that way. Mm. And, uh, 
materials are everywhere around us. So it was a super cool. And so the idea was, oh, wow, so eventually we can really change the world so we can make a so better so, um, catalyst so for, for a, a car, so for, for cars. So it was amazing, okay? So we were starting to, to think about the, uh, climate, climate change, so ozone hole. So that was so okay, this underlying. Of course, so it didn't get to provide the same attention as today, but so we were starting, okay, just to have some feelings about that. So we have to preserve climate. Um, and that one was so when I was young, and so what is started to trigger me attention about material science. Um, I wanted to do probably some more experimental work at the beginning. Um, I'm again, so um, we started to to make so there was a, this um, um, a research about uh, so the early stage of the scanning and microscope with these fantastic images, uh, atoms that are moving. So they were creating a different uh, so labels. Uh, so research that uh, so were creating uh, so also reproducing uh, some of the uh, famous building. Okay, just with atoms. So was a really so just playing a Lego, but at an atomic scale. Okay, so fantastic. Um, I didn't have the right gender to join, so the microscopy lab in my my undergrad. So um, it was so they were just saying to me that so there were too many people male in front of me, and so why to, to waste essentially my time of doing a master project so with them. Um, and so with so with this success. Okay, I I was approached by um, a PhD, uh, by a PhD student that was doing a computational material science, and he was telling me, so we are a very small group, but uh, so the, the supervisor is uh, so nice, is following me well, and um, so hey, you are not thinking about uh, so doing a computational uh, material science project, and I was a bit shocked because it's so. I never had a laptop in my family home, okay? Not even a PC. So it was something that, oh, God, is, uh, programming. I, so, no, absolutely no way. Um, but so, just let's try. So just inquiring. And um, what it then became my core master and then a PhD supervisor suggested me, okay, so that we are two techniques, one is called the Monte Carlo and the other one the molecular dynamics. I have more experience with Monte, uh, with Monte Carlo, but the molecular dynamics is becoming more and more important. And uh, what you prefer? And I say molecular dynamics because the name was absolutely more fascinating than Monte Carlo. Okay, so Monte Carlo is just gambling, so I don't like gambling. And that one is uh, why I ended in 19... 1999, <laughs> um, doing my, my master project. And uh, I continued since then, uh, essentially to, to present, to write some lines of code, unfortunately less and less, becoming older and older, um, and trying to model. So uh, what I like uh, 
most is just to find uh, um, an interesting uh, scientific question and try to visualize uh, how we can model it. So what are the materials, so how the molecules can move on top of so metal, how so the, the materials can be formed, how they are going to change. I started so with the problem at the nanoscale, and where, atoms, where every atom counts, essentially, so very, very few atoms or uh, up to hundreds of atoms um, clustered together to form a basis that are so-called nanoparticles. And I tried to study so their thermodynamical uh, properties. So, of course, starting from the potential energy up to the free energy, so how they can evolve from one to the other. Because, so, as you know, if uh, the bulks uh, can be scattered in uh, this uh, 12 magic uh, Bravais lattices, uh, when you have a finite object, uh, essentially various uh, shapes are possible, and so when you have different uh, shapes, uh, the electronic structure, and so all the chemical physical properties are going to change. Of course, understanding how they, they transform can give also uh, an idea about their lifetime, and so if they can become so um, reliable or realistic so, uh, material for uh, doing some capacity. Um, I always attain so, this kind of field, except for um, three, four years, where I also started to look at the uh, atmospheric chemistry. So there is, a again, for the ozone depletion, so it um, rises from a specific uh, region, and so why just above the, the Antarctica? And that is because so you can form a, only there, so there are these polar stratospheric clouds that are essentially so clouds made of ice. The cosmic rays so left some charges on top of this ice surface. And... Um, um, on the contrary of what happens in, uh, in water, that is uh, uh, an extra charge is just encapsulated around the water so, uh, on ice. So this extra charge can remain at the surface. And of course, when it's, uh, the chlorofluorocarbons arrive, so you find this uh, extra charge. And so that one is a way to accelerate the, the dynamics and so why to have uh, then, so active chlorine species that can interact with the ozone and so starting all the, ray, all the chemical reaction from that. Um, if you want, so this kind of experience also give me the possibility to, um, to couple so, uh, the previous studies with nanoparticles to the design of a nanocatalyst because so. That started with uh, some molecular species. And when uh, so I joined Kings and then I started so my own research lines, so I started with uh, the design of nanocatalyst. So, seeing places uh, so characterizing uh, so assertion site, uh, understanding how the formation process of nanoparticles can affect their chemical physical properties. And we are still working on that, simply because uh, so when you, when it's just enough to change of one atom so to have a different chemical physical properties, of course. So you have an infinite 
almost infinite amount of studies to do. So, and now we are trying to to be uh, smarter. So just trying to find a uh, different way to classify them or just uh, to, to branch um, system and properties uh, so in order to screen them uh, in a faster way. Thank you. That was very fascinating. I mean, you've covered so you, you showed us our, your whole journey and it's very impressive to think that now you're working mainly in computational when you mentioned that it was just by chance that you moved to computational uh, science like and that's such a bold move to take after your undergrad. I mean, so I, I was just wondering, like, now that you're in computer science, um, how do you see it fitting amongst like, like, do you ever regret it? I, I guess not because you've done so much <laughs> after because you mentioned you wanted to do microscopy. But how do you see computer science like fitting in now that you have so much experience in it compared to experimental theory and like um, now that you have experience in it? Yeah. Uh, put in that way, so I I always try. So I always try to. Uh, see the experimental point of view in any research. So, um, and probably so I'm still closer to an experimental lab than writing an equation. <laughs> so it's a feeling. So no, I don't like writing equation. No, so, um, but yeah, it is very important to still like have experimental verification and stuff. But yes, but the, yeah. so just again, so, so trying to understand. Uh, um, some uh, uh, fundamental um, parts in an experiment because that one can also give you an idea about what kind of modeling uh, you need. Um, honestly, so um, computational material science can give you an idea about how to model stuff. Now, so we have uh, so many existing code, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel, okay? So there are some uh, mm, machinery that uh, works per- so not perfectly, but so works pretty well. And it's more about, uh, so really, so just to mm, to figure out, okay, so in the experiment that they have done this bit, so what kind of tools are so to use, and so just to create, uh, so also a numerical strategy, not only for some details. Um, and that one probably is now, so, probably so, again, a way to, to work. So again, if you're comparing what, what was happening in, um, in the 90s, so in the 80s, okay, so there was the idea, okay, build up the first density functional theory codes, okay? So in the 90s, how to speed up, <laughs> just to make them more efficient, um, how to move to parallel machine, okay, so, but, so they were only serious, okay, so we, we are coming from a different area. Um, now it's about also so to, and to rely on the machine and that so they are already there, uh, how to produce so eventually more data and how to also so put them together. Um, and again, so you can start also to think about so or more multi-scale processes, so where you are bunching, okay, more uh, computational technique uh, together, 
in a meaningful way. Okay, so that one is tricky. And this, of course, also depending on what the scientific question you have. Um, you can be still interested in developing, okay, so some parts of the theory and then implement it in the code for, uh, um, for all the bunch of uh, scientific questions that so we don't have yet uh, a reliable model. So there are different so, flavors about this computational material science. Um, we have also this kind of design and so with this scale process and so on. So, that one, again, I'm not very good in writing equations, so I prefer just so, a modeling strategy. But yeah, having seen this evolution, like you've worked for so many years in so many institutions and you've seen this evolution of computer science and with this experience, what would you say is the best part of working in the academia in this field? Or have you ever been like tempted to switch to industry or like? Compared Never. To Never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, after my undergrad, I did a job interview in a, in for a company. For a real company, okay, where you have to put also the drug. And after that, I say, so no, no way. So I, I, I no, I really didn't fit in a, any kind of uh, industry. What I have to say is that so nowadays, and that was not the case when I was uh, younger, um, there are different so spin-off companies, uh, um, Simul Material Studios. Uh, so there are so different realities that if you want, so are kind of uh, the missing link, if you want, between uh, um, computational material science done in academia and what we may be used also for industry. Um, eventually, so, okay, I'm, I'm too old for, uh, for considering that, but uh, that one could be, so, um, a good career option if you want. That one was not available, so, after my PhD or after my, so, yeah, uh, I, I was probably never considered it. Probably, so I never had the, so the um, the professional instinct to to initiate something like that. But this uh, uh, that one probably will be so a kind of uh, in more company-like environment that this eventually will consider um, work now working properly in industry now. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the nice thing nowadays is that there are these kind of spin-off companies that are like in between R&D and industry that give like that brand, uh, like in between place to work in, which would be nice from academia. Yeah. And probably so they will, will increase, okay, in, uh, in the future. So, um, and probably computational material scientists uh, will be more needed. Again, if you are considering that material science can cover from uh, so um, a super bulky material from perovskite up to soft materials, uh, so protein interaction, uh, so uh, to model both drugs uh, or uh, so vaccine, okay, before starting <laughs> to any kind of uh, um, proper trial. So that one is going to be quite uh, quite useful. So. Mm. Again, so there was a, a friend of a friend that is working for uh, Unilevel, and they were doing a molecular dynamics simulation for understanding so 
what kind of ties um, uh, uh, it was a kind of lipid, so some are very long or complex or kind. So we're going to, to use uh, for uh, having a um, better shampoo. Okay. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so the, and he was saying, okay, and now you can find uh, so some of our products that are coming from, so that they started from a molecular dynamic simulation on the supermarket shelves. Okay. So, uh, we are, so in some field, we are already at this level. So that, that operator is going to be, uh, exciting was not my career path. Now that we have, Certainties. So one of it is that I was not used to, to do that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. I mean, it's always quite a teasing question, um, but I'm glad you've answered honestly. <laughs> right. Okay. So now for more teaching related questions. Okay. So we've had mixed responses from previous interviewees about their preferred teaching strategies, whether that be the flipped classroom model or the so-called traditional talk and chalk lecturing style. What would you say your preferred teaching tools are, especially on the computational side of things? Is there any particular software you like to use? Um, no, I would say so for undergrad, no, you cannot be focused only so on one, um, especially at the beginning. So for a second year student, so no, just don't be limited to one code. So... Again, uh, is um, I still believe that it's quite important to to show undergrads I uh, from some uh, equation that uh, so they can study on books. Uh, so what does it mean to implement uh, that one in a code? Now you can discuss uh, so what kind of programming language to teach them um, or to show them or to encourage them to do practice. Okay, so computational material science, so in that sense, is fully experimental. If you're not practicing, you are not able to code, and you are not able to read any code. Sorry about that, so it's always something that the student, oh, give me the solution. No, I don't give you the solution, okay. So it's not really proper about the flipping class or traditional method. It's about convincing undergrads to go to a lab and to, pre and to, to type <laughs> so some, some instruction to present. Um, the, the choice about so specific what kind of programming language so it may depend a little bit on in which environment you are. Um, Python is one of the languages that so is more required, especially outside academia. Um, in my field, so there are still uh, many that are in Fortran, and when you see Fortran, you see people like Fortran. <laughs> so for, uh, so was it for the Jurassic time is true, but it's, uh, uh, at the core, some of the codes are still in Fortran, C++, so definitely it's like that. Um, I don't believe that is so important because again, so what is important is just to is just to teach students just to see all the the different parts, okay? The question, the code, the results, how to analyze the results, okay? 
and uh, what you can trust and what you cannot trust. So how to compare so a numerical result with a so analytical result or experimental data. And that's an interesting, at least it's a, the best that, from my point of view, that should be taught. Um, now, just imagine to go to a first year, okay, or second year undergrads and asking them that so they needed to do some work. So during the, so, uh, a lab, and they needed to produce a fancy. So it's completely unpopular, but still is needed. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about Fortran, because I come from a very different background. I come from the life sciences, and so coding isn't something that I've done very much of before. But when I compared Fortran and Python, Fortran just seemed a lot more straightforward. You know, it's it's more self-contained, whereas Python, you, you know, you create these sort of on-the-fly variables. And uh, it's quite interesting because um, some people would, you know, shy away from Fortran, whereas others find it uh, something that makes slightly more sense. So, yeah, you've got this division of opinion. Uh, I prefer Fortran. And so, again, I'm absolutely unpopular. Um... Is again about this, so um, you can't cover everything uh, during a, so an undergrad, and so you just need to, to do some choices. Uh, and that one, of course, is also depending on what usually so the market after so a degree is requiring. Uh, in average, we have noticed that so in the last years, so Python is usually one of the requests, and so that one is the reason why so several other. Uh, and switching to Python. I, um, I grew up with Fortran, 77. <laughs> um, and uh, I agree 100% with you. Fortran is, uh, um, for somehow, it's easier. So, better. So, as a very simple uh, logic in the sense that this, uh, everything is uh, explicit. So, you have adjusted to the, uh, you can read it. Uh, Okay, because uh, everything is that. Python is not in that way. So, again, because it's um, just as, just to make a pattern, so uh, looking better. Um, so, there are so much material already around that, uh, so the idea is uh, why to ask uh, also students or other researchers to reinvent the wheel every time. Just so find that one so available. And if you're not, if it's in the, the last um, years or so, less than five, probably, also many codes are all available. So there is a GitHub, so you can find a lot of information already available there. So just to think about uh, so, uh, the impact that uh, as a atomic simulation environment had on many of us. So, um, okay. When we started to have people like James Kermode, okay, growing up, so that one was so a kind of a phase transition between the old and the, the new world. So if you're asking me right now if it is better or not to so Python or others, I would say that for undergrads, probably just go to, to Python. But I prefer Personally, I prefer Fortran, and I still coding in Fortran, but I ask my PhD and master's student to code in Python. No, I, I leave them free to do, to do what they want. I no, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
the full tranny you've kind of got you know implicit none nothing is you know <laughs> i'm an implicit none okay so just define me everything and so. yeah yeah definitely okay so tracking back to some more research specific questions so sort of in regards to your work with metallic nanoparticles can you perhaps explain to our listeners why it is after so many years of research in this area that nanoparticles are still such a hot topic ah a fantastic question so um the short answer is because they are many different and flexible fluctional so sometimes we have adopting So these uh, terms are fluxional nanoparticles. So fluxional so is used uh, usually in chemistry, so, and that one is a reference to the ability of a molecule about a changing of isomers. Exactly the same in metallic nanoparticles. So metallic nanoparticles, so you can just think of, um, to use uh, tennis balls, colored in different ways, and just try to bunch them together. Okay, just to so put some, uh, some glue on them. Um, the number of combinations, of course, so roughly n factorial, so it's huge, huge. Now, if you have uh, uh, a cube, or if you have a sphere, or if you have a star, or if you have a tetrahedron, they have completely different electronic structures. Now, just imagine that so you have this uh, multidimensional space to explore. So that's when the progress of the, the research in the night is about to find this uh, efficient global optimization techniques uh, to explore the potential energy surface. And again, so um, metallic nanoparticles or Leonard-Jones nanoparticles were used so like a toy model so for showing the efficiency of global optimization tools, so genetic algorithm, there's no thing. They are also very quite so, um, British-made, okay? So some of the ideas came from Birmingham, from Scott, probably also, um, Cambridge. So, okay, just explore. Uh, then, of course, so there was also the idea, okay, but so different uh, uh, minima, so maybe are connected and that they are connected so through different so solid uh, shapes so you don't have to melt them and so um annealing them in a different structure. And so that one was the idea, okay, can we use so techniques and so what kind of techniques we need to use for transition pass sampling so again when you have a nation matrix and by with an so that is eventually so several hundred, so it's not easy to be done, okay? And that also triggers a lot, a part of the research. Then, so again, so uh, we start from, um, especially in the field of nanocatalysis, so they start also to, to inquire, okay, can we design them, okay? So we have many, how we can just pick up the best one for one specific chemical reaction. And here, of course, it is becoming so the fact that the chemical reaction depends so on the absorption site of where a molecule is attached, but a nanoparticle presents a variety of different absorption sites. And so, of course, so you have also to explore and so how to explore so the different absorption sites, how to combine them 
some screening that so were possible to do for uh, so metallic alloys in the bulk eventually are not as efficient uh, at the nanoscale again because so we don't have any bands. So we have energy levels, especially at small size. Uh, there is a strong interaction of the nanoparticle with the substrate and the nanoparticle with the environment. So how to model. Uh, or, so and we start just to add the different uh, so complexity. Then in terms of catalysis, it's also important so in, uh, in which way we are exciting the system. Okay. So it can be temperature activated. So that is thermochemistry, essentially. Um, using a bias, electrochemistry, using a light, and so can be photocatalysis or plasmocatalysis if we are also considering as nanoparticles that are plasmonic, and so this idea of the carriers of, uh, of electrons of holes that remains as a reservoir and then they are injecting in the, the mass. Now, Imagine, so, okay, I have cited just only so four different sets of physical principles on top of a variety of uh, structure of the system, because so when you are combining uh, two different metals, so, and the uh, sizes that uh, so can move from uh, one nanometer up to ten nanometers, so above ten, also just one to five nanometers. So we are standing between so, tens of atoms up to ten to four, ten to five atoms. Okay? So and they change. And there is a no a size behavior that is well defined. You don't know how mobile they are. So if you're changing the surfaces, so you're changing the catalytic properties. And so you have to redo if you want a set of calculation again. <laughs> so that one is the reason why so probably um, so uh, some artificial intelligence tools may help just to screening, but we don't have yet so the full database. Again, so if you are seeing so materials project um, nomad that is more European, uh, they are really focus on the, usually on bulk properties, a uh, little bit less on nanoparticles because again, so the variety is so much. There are, so the database for nanoparticles are uh, still very limited. It's up to us, create some of them, exploring them, putting them together in a relevant way and in a good way, and just start to find. But so, um, nanoparticles are still uh, cool. Definitely, they are. Yeah, I mean, if if you have different properties for every tiny different size, then it must be a huge variety of things to study uh, in this field. Like, yeah. So I would say, given that there are so many techniques and and so many things to look at in theoretical research, but people often say that it takes we have all these possibilities to explore, but it'll take like decades before we can actually apply it in the industry or something. But like, I often find it more motivating to see like where we're going towards, like the tangible difference that we're going to make. So I was just wondering, and your uh, area of research has many like strong, relevant industrial applications like fluid cells, hydrogen storage. Could you maybe just give an example for our listeners just to visualize the process of some new property that you've studied in the past 
that has like gone on to experiment and adapted to industry or has already been used in industry, just as an example. So, probably until a couple of years ago, so uh, numerical modeling was uh, following uh, experimental observation. So they were noticing uh, some uh, some experiments, okay, some experimental data. Um, sometimes they were also using already the experimental data also so in uh, practical application. And that one was, if you want, also the case about so uh, why to use uh, nanogold uh, as catalyst. Gold is quite the inert, so in, uh, in bulk, but so single gold atoms are very active. And then they discovered that so probably were not not even okay small aggregates of gold was probably so that so gold was just so uh, in its atomic form and so it was a super uh, catalytic. But so that one was just the opposite. So from the experiment they started to create a reactor and in the meanwhile here it just so produced some relevant explanation. We are currently now probably just at the turning point where so uh, numerical modeling so can be predictive and can guide some experiments. Um, so we, and that one are also so uh, reality about so uh, catalysis up, so where so you are really putting also in the same places so um, experimentalists and uh, uh, numerical people just trying to, to collaborate. Mm, what we um, what we have seen is that, uh, uh, for example, so just there were not a, uh, clarity about why, what similar sizes, uh, same chemical reaction, same nanoparticles, so, so, so no same nanoparticles. Right? Nanoparticles that so mass selected and so similar sizes were producing so different catalytic uh, um, response for the same chemical reaction in the same condition. And one simple explanation it could be that so there are uh, structural morphology morphology difference of the nanosamples, and so depending on who is doing, uh, okay, how you are synthesizing, uh, how you are forming, uh, so what kind of sample you are using, uh, uh, you will get a different response. So with activity that may change over four times. Um, that one is still a posteriori, but of course uh, that one can also give us uh, an idea about how numerical modeling can uh, um, guide experiments. Um, Of course, so convincing experimentalists to use so your system is not, sometimes is not so uh, so obvious. Um, what they are, uh, uh, what is really tricky, and again, where numerical modeling may help is about uh, find so a material that is a selective versus so one specific product, because otherwise, so an experiment will be too much. And that one will lead to significant impact uh, on industry. So 
ammonium formation CO2 reduction. So really are depending on this kind of, uh, um, of studies. So that one is what we can make an impact uh, in a short, kind of short future. So something on our lifetime. Yes, of course. I mean, it's always quite a difficult thing to think about, you know, who's wrong here, the experimentalist or, or the theorist? So, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so the final question for this episode is, what is the one piece of advice you would give to a young researcher starting in the field? Perhaps can you give us some academic wisdom from someone who's been through the process? Okay, so let me um, use a quote from uh, um, a professor uh, Ravi Said, that was uh, so, uh, the Elsevier Prize for third uh, countries. And um, she claimed that uh, I will learn that without motivation and hard working, uh, one can succeed. So it doesn't matter how many downs uh, you will have. So that one is absolutely part of research. It's important just to rise uh, n plus one times. So that's only, probably is not true only for research, that's only true for many things. Um, is that about us? So never be discouraged by a simulation that doesn't hand uh, how it was supposed, that it doesn't converge. So that one is absolutely part of the job. It's just keep going. Mm, sometimes our simulations uh, uh, are not crediting anything good. It, again, it's not anything too personal, okay? So it's just about uh, find uh, a better solution to a difficult problem. So always keep going and uh, be curious. These are the only things, be curious. And simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we can, just be simple. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's definitely solid advice. Um, sort of think twice, code once, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, well, it looks like we've just about got to the end of the uh, the podcast. And thank you to our guest, Francesca Paletto. It's been a pleasure having you join us this week's episode. And um, I think we'll let you go not get on with the rest of your day's research activities. Thanks. So, thank to you. And that concludes this episode with Francesca Paletto. And we hope you enjoyed listening. As usual, if you have any comments or questions about this episode, you can reach us on our Twitter page, at MultiscaleMuse. Do join us next time for another interesting scientific discussion with Dr. Ms. Basawa, a senior scientist working in R&D at Johnson Matthey. And that's it from us. Goodbye. <laughs>